Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah. And I'm Mariana. So it's been a bit, Jonah. What have you been up to? Um, we had a sage grouse brood that was relocated yesterday. So today I went out to check on them because um, we monitor them daily since each of the chicks has a radio transmitter. So we're trying to, you know, look at chick survival. And I had a really weird thing happen this morning. Um, there was a chick yesterday when it was released that seemed to be a little injured and it stayed around the release site. And then this morning when I wanted to check on them, I went straight to the release site to see if that chick was still there. And it was, and it, it was laying there in the same spot, dead. And so I, I located the others and then I collected that that chick that was dead and was carrying it back to the truck. And I had probably walked a half mile and was <laughs> carrying the, the carcass by the foot because it was all wet and muddy because it rained last night. So I was just had it dangling by the foot. And after a half mile, all of a sudden the chick came back to life. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> And started really? kicking its legs <laughs> and scared the crap out of me because I'd been carrying it for like 10 minutes dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I dropped it on the ground and it was sort of yeah. moving and moving its head and I didn't know what to do <laughs> because I was just in shock <laughs> and you know I didn't want to my first instinct was to euthanize it because it was obviously on its way out and it, it had an obvious leg injury that I had I've seen before on a, a grouse um, but I didn't want you know it we put a lot of effort into getting them up here and, you know, it was still moving around enough where there was a chance of it surviving and I didn't want my supervisor to be mad at me if I euthanized it. So, uh, you know, I put it under a bush to, you know, hopefully recover, but I'm not hopeful. But it was just the weirdest, the weirdest situation that it was just resurrected like that. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. Wow. That's funny. Anyways, what is new with you? <clears throat> um, no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't really do anything today. Um, I got a my latest copy of Wildlife Professional in the mail. Um, I get that from being a member of the Wildlife Society. <laughs> Ooh, moving up. Ooh. <laughs> Um, so I'm excited about reading it, actually, because it's about um, poaching and smuggling, or the main topic is about poaching and smuggling, which is one of my um, most passionate topics, and we will be doing an episode on that eventually. Yeah, we should do that um, but, sooner rather than later, after you read that article, because maybe there's some good content. Yeah, yep. Um, so, question for you, Jenna. What is the first piece of technology you ever used in your wildlife career? Probably the basic handheld GPS, as far as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Thinking of setting prebates on the Bear City using a GPS, that's, that's probably the first, first wildlife-related piece of technology that I've used in the field. How about you? I was going to say the hoop traps for painted turtles, but... Um. Then I thought, is that does that count as technology? A hoop trap, a trap. I think it. You no, know, like I think it does because I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this episode, um, and I think that traps are technology, and they're, they're technology that we use to study wildlife. Right, it's a tool. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's a tool that facilitates our work. So yeah, I think it. I think it qualifies. What would be the it's difference? Not advanced technology. What would be the difference between tool and technology? Like, could a tool be technology? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, then the hoop traps, I would say, count. Yeah, I, I'd say so. Yeah, we'll probably have comments about <laughs> comments from people on our Facebook page <laughs> about our our loose interpretation <laughs> of the word technology. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> if you haven't guessed it, we're talking about technology today. Technology in the wildlife profession and technology for wildlife can range from anything as simple as you know a, a hoop trap 
um, or something that I thought of like bird bands, I think that those are technologies. Um, and I was just reading in this book that the first recorded bird banding was by John James Audubon in like 1803 or 1804. And he just put threads around the legs of Phoebe's and like, that's how bird banding began. So I think like, that's a, that's like a piece of thread started this Mm -hmm. technology or tool. And then now we're at a stage where we're using like remote sensing and um, all sorts of other satellite technology. Yeah. Wildlife professionals, we have to be creative in the field to solve problems. And I think we've always been a pretty innovative field. So um, it makes sense that, our technology would, or rather our methods would only improve as technology becomes more feasible. So, so yeah, so advanced technology, it makes research and conservation not only easier on us, but also on the animals and the environments we are studying. And uh, we hope that's something we can convey over the course of this episode as we talk about examples and some of our favorite technologies of the day. Especially modern day wildlife research. We've, we've come very far since putting a thread on a bird's leg and we have some really really crazy technology that's used today and without that technology we wouldn't know things about certain species we wouldn't be able to study populations we wouldn't we really wouldn't have conservation the way we do it today without a lot of these technologies some of which are so basic and and normal to us as wildlife researchers but they weren't always so so yeah, do you want to start us off with one of these examples? Aside from the hoop traps for painted turtles, as I discussed earlier, one of the first uh, pieces of te- advanced technology that I used in the field was radio was conducting radio telemetry um, using a receiver and an antenna. And the radio telemetry I'm most familiar with is very high frequency telemetry, which is VHF. Um, those were the frequencies I use the most um, anytime I've done radio telemetry. And it's basically, you put a, a a radio collar on the animal you want to track, and it emits a signal, and you know that you know what frequency the signal is at, and you use the receiver, the radio receiver, to find the signal. And it comes in as as a beep, as as you might expect, as you might have heard. And the strength of the reception tells you how close you are and you can triangulate if you're working with a large animal that you can't approach you can triangulate its location um, if you're working with something like a squirrel uh, you can get as close as the tree the squirrel is in um, if the squirrel is cooperating <laughs> but radio telemetry is one of my favorite technologies when it comes to to wildlife research it, it really helps us to determine range for 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 an animal or a population and movement patterns uh, we did some of that on the bear study that we worked with together at unity college and it's especially exciting when you can put a, a satellite collar on an animal because you can get even more precise and timely data on on their movements on their habitat selection patterns and things like that yeah i remember um George Matula, who was one of our professors and mentors. And um, I remember when I was learning, well, we learned radio telemetry from him, but I remember him telling me stories about how, I believe it was in the late 60s, when he was um, doing Eastern Cottontail research. That was when, the early 60s was when radio telemetry really was entering the wildlife field and he went to illinois to work with a guy i believe his name was john cochran and john cochran was really the father of wildlife radio telemetry and so i remember george talking about these this elaborate setup and system that they were designing to try to track the eastern cottontails automatically um but anyways it's really cool because he you know got to spend time with this guy who pioneered radio telemetry for wildlife um so i always think of that whenever i i think of radio telemetry for for some reason because it's just a cool little piece of information that george shared 
Yeah, you also, in addition to VHF frequencies that Marianne is talking about, there's also UHF frequency frequencies, ultra-high frequencies, which aren't as commonly used in wildlife, but there are options for devices that you can deploy on animals where it records GPS locations, and then it stores that on the device that is on the animal. And then you can go out with a UHF receiver, and you have to be within a certain range of the animal. And then you can download that data via ultra-high frequency onto your UHF receiver. And then you can plug that in the computer and get all the points. And so it's sort of like a, a halfway between VHF and GPS um, because it's it's using both radio waves and satellite technology, which I've never actually used that. I'd, I'd like to just because I'm curious how it works. I've definitely heard of stories where it, you know there's a lot of issues because you also have to be locating the animal on the ground. And if it's a wide-ranging animal, you have to be able to find it to download the locations. And if you can't find it, then you basically get no data. Um, so, you know, with when you're in when you're doing a project, you're sort of weighing these pros and cons of each of these technologies for for tracking animals. Um, and then, like Mariana said, you have the GPS and, and satellite technology in collars or um, other devices, telemetry devices, which are pretty straightforward. You know, they're using a satellite to record a specific location, and then that's either stored on the on the collar for you to pull off the collar when you remove the collar or it's sent to like a website or to a satellite station where you could download that data. So, you know, depending on the size of the unit, the battery life and things like that, you could be getting locations of your animal every day and basically almost watching it real time, which is what we would do a lot on the bear study. Yeah. And as Jonah just alluded to, uh, Collars are not the only way to get a a, tran a radio transmitter or a GPS or satellite transmitter on an animal. Uh, there are many different ways, and it just depends on a few things, uh, the appropriateness for the animal. Uh, for example, you you wouldn't put a collar on... What wouldn't you put a collar on? A seal. Um, a seal, yes, exactly. Thank you. So, for example, you wouldn't put a collar on a seal... But you would use an, you'd probably likely use an adhesive, or um, there are also some uh, subdermal um, transmitters. Uh, of course, those are cost prohibitive, and also it, it requires a little bit more of a procedure um, for the animal to to get that in them. Yeah, I recently worked on a river otter project where we were putting radio implants in the abdomen of the otters because just because a lot of weasels, um, mustelids have really tube-like body, and so you can't put a collar just because their neck is the same size as their head. But yeah, like you said, it it's very invasive, and that's fine if you can justify, you know, the, the research that you're doing. And the project that I worked on was not justified, and things went really, really bad. And, um, you know, it's a lot different than just, you know, capturing an animal, putting a collar on it real quick, and releasing on its way when you're doing a an implant you have to have you know you have to do surgery and you have to have a sterile environment and there's just a lot more complications that can arise and, and you could put like in birds you can put backpacks on um, gps backpacks mm -hmm. or rump mounts that are sort of like backpacks towards the butt um, sometimes there's solar panel um, solar panels on there which you know extends the life of of the unit. So the, there's a huge variety of these devices you can have for doing telemetry on animals, and it's a lot of times it's species specific. Like I've seen on um, Telonix, which is one of the um, telemetry companies, I've seen on their website they have giant anteater radio backpacks, and do they? It, you have to look it up. It's the weirdest thing. It's for giant anteaters and tapers because they're sort of weird shaped animals. And it's like a collar and a belt. And the collar and the belt are connected by like a strap down the back so that neither can fall off. And Like a harness. Yeah, basically. It's like a, a very strange backpack harness. But 
anyways, the, each species, you know, has its different challenges when you're trying to deploy these units. Okay, so one of the biggest areas of technology, um, or one of the biggest areas of wildlife in which we use technology is fighting wildlife crime. And wildlife crime... So wildlife crime is sort of a, a multidisciplinary um, effort. Fighting wildlife crime is a multidisciplinary effort, and it requires a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity, and uh, a lot of secrecy, actually. And technology has enabled wardens and other conservationists and rangers to more effectively prevent crime um, on the front end, and as well as to track not only poachers and those who are committing these crimes, but also either the animals themselves or animal parts, horns, uh, ivory, things like that. And there are a lot of technologies that are being used to facilitate that kind of work, um, including GPS technologies. The World Wildlife Fund has a wildlife crime technology project. It's funded by Google. Its purpose is to test and deploy technology to support these wildlife crime fighting efforts, especially for rangers concerned with poaching. So the Wildlife Crime Technology Project works on all sorts of technologies ranging from radar to detect snares and traps, acoustics to detect gunshots in the field, and GPS trackers to track animals and parts um, and things like that. Yeah, and one of... um... A program that I'm familiar with, it's not under, well, I'm. it might be related to WWF's project, but uh, don't quote me on that. But um, I have a friend in Zambia where I worked who is in charge of a program called SMART, and it's basically a, a GPS-based, GPS GIS software that records the tracks of where anti-poaching units go on patrols and then where they find poachers or signs of poachers or camps or, you know, confiscate things and all of that data. And it goes into this database to create maps and, you know, you can look at where they're doing patrols and then that can be used and where they're finding the most poaching activity. And that can be used to inform, you know, future patrols, you know, like, oh, you're not covering this area enough. So cover here or, there's a lot of activity here, so we need to make sure to be patrolling this more frequently. I know it's used in different in a lot of parts of the world, but my friend, um, who's a, the program manager for that for Panthera, she travels around Africa a lot because um, obviously poaching is a big issue in Africa, and she's training people from different organizations or, or governments to to use this program so that it, poaching anti poaching efforts are more efficient and effective, really. So another technology that's used to, to fight wildlife crime are unmanned vehicles or drones. And in fact, unmanned vehicles are increasingly being used for all sorts of wildlife applications. And using an unmanned vehicle or drone um, is a, a very efficient way to cover ground and to, to conduct surveillance and things like that. Yeah, I've not. it's not related to wildlife crime, but I remember I listened to a talk from one of the Wildlife Society meetings um, where they were using drones to count stellar sea lion, to, to count stellar sea lions in a colony in the Aleutian Islands or something like that. And it's amazing because they can just, you know, they used to have to count them from a boat, which obviously you're missing a lot in the middle and they'd have to, you know, they'd have a lot of statistical assumptions. But with these drones, they can just fly over the whole island and it's basically taking like a panoramic photo of the whole island and then they can just have that photo to actually count the exact number of of sea lions, you know, obviously with a little bit of error, but it's a lot more precise and it doesn't require them you know, to be driving around the, the island and trying to count them on their own while they're in the boat. Yeah, and it's also a lot less invasive to, to the populations that they're trying to count as well. 
Um, and it and it also enables us to get more accurate counts that way. Oh, one of my other favorite um, wildlife crime related technology that I was reading about are these um, fake sea turtle eggs that an organization called Paso Pacifico is developing or maybe has already developed. But basically, they're they're fake sea turtle eggs with GPS um, that are a GPS device. And so they put them in known sea turtle nests in areas where there's a lot of egg poaching. So, you know, people take sea turtle eggs and then they sell them on the black market for uh, whatever, whether it's eating them or trying to have a baby sea turtle or I have no clue. But um, anyways, when they, you know, a poacher will just collect the whole nest and then this GPS egg will be in there. And not only will it help you like catch poachers and um, maybe catch other poachers related, but it also one of the things they highlighted is that it'll you know show you trade routes of where they're going to sell these things and who's buying them. And so, well, I imagine to get that information, they'll you know they won't try to catch the poacher right away. They'll just leave it so they can see where it's going and where this trafficking is taking place. Another really cool one that I read is um, by this organization called Planet Indonesia. And it's an app that people in Southeast Asia can use when they're like going through a market or something. And it's for reporting bird trafficking. So it's meant to be covert. So it like the interface makes it look like you're sending a text or something, but really you can be entering data about what species you see, how many see like other variables like how much it's being sold for if you can get that information or even taking a photo of it if you you know can do that covertly um, and then it goes into this database to better understand bird trafficking which I think is like these these kind of things these new technologies that are they're just so creative ones like that and the turtle eggs and I think it's really going to change the way that wildlife crime is addressed as an issue agreed and i like that they're involving citizens so it it is basically a type of citizen science project whether you're you're fighting crime or you're taking data points like the smartphone apps i'm really fascinated by these sort of portable mobile phone applications that have different purposes for wildlife, uh, whether you're fighting wildlife crime, like the one you just spoke of, or you're just collecting data points like eBird and other citizen science projects, those are important data points that researchers do use. One of our major restrictions in wildlife research is manpower. And so having robust citizen science projects that you can put in an application where people can just bring it with them, um, it's really really going to improve our, our citizen science initiatives and as jonah said are wildlife crime fighting as well yeah there's even um it not in citizen it's not used for citizen science but even on certain research projects there's um mobile phone applications or tablet applications that are used instead of using a a paper data sheet so you know like on the sagegrass project that i work on when we locate a bird we have a an app called Canvas, where you just enter in the data right there and it takes your GPS location right there. And so it all just goes straight into the digital database. You know, you're not having to manually enter it, which is good in in some cases and good in others. But again, just sort of like telemetry, it depends on the, the questions you're trying to answer and what your project actually is. But there's just an increasing amount of these mobile technologies that allow for this quick and easy data collection in the field without having to worry about paper, um, especially because, you know, a a data sheet gets lost or something when on the phone, it goes directly to the cloud or directly into the database. Um, So how about we talk about camera trapping? Because this is a big piece of technology that is being used in wildlife nowadays. And... It's, I think, probably my favorite over telemetry. Um, Well, I do love GPS telemetry, 
because it's super easy. <laughs> Just slap it on an animal. <laughs> no, but um, camera trapping, it, it, there's so many creative things that have been done with camera trapping. You know, so when most people think of camera trapping or, you know, a, a camera trap, in case you don't know, is is like a game camera, or, you know, like hunters use to get photos of um, animals on their property or what have you. And camera trapping has been, been around for a while, even since the days of film, when thing camera trapping was a lot more complicated. And it was really, I don't know exactly if it was how it was pioneered, but I think one of its applications that's been used the longest is this Mark Resite um, study design. So, you know, one thing that we do in in most wildlife research on most wildlife research projects is we tag animals so that we can identify individuals. So you know you put a a yellow tag in an ear of a deer with certain numbers, and and you don't put that same color and number tag in another animal. So then you could differentiate between individuals. Well, with camera trapping, for certain animals, you can identify individuals by, for instance, their, their coat pattern. So, um, so like tigers or leopards or even hyenas and wild dogs. That's, I did a lot of that when I was in Zambia. I'm um, spending hours looking at photos <laughs> of leopards and hyenas to, to try to match them for ones that are in our database. But anyways, you, you know, each individual has a unique spot pattern. And so when they walk by a camera, you get a photo of them. That animal becomes marked the first time it's on camera. And then you give it a name or you give it an ID. And then the next photos, uh, you know, all other photos after that original one, you compare to the initial individuals to see if it matches. And if it does, then there you have a recite. And, you know, that study design allows you to estimate population and distribution and, and even movement. I've seen papers where there's enough recites for them to map a rough home range based on these cameras, camera trap recites. Um, another way that camera trapping can be combined with animal tagging, um, an example is on the Bighorn Cheat project I worked on, you know, these animals got collars and then they also got uniquely colored and numbered ear tags. And then we would have camera traps at the water sources. And so we could look at all the camera trap photos and get recites of individuals by looking at the, the color scheme or the, the numbers on their ear tags. And so then you get recaptures for them. And then also you can see if they're lactating, if they have a lamb, and that was sort of the point of the project. And so that's sort of a combination of the tagging, the the physical tagging, and the the camera trap recites um, application. Yeah, and camera traps can also be used to monitor diversity um, at a location, at a site, um, and this is especially important if you are, say, trying to protect a site and. Part of your survey of the site is to monitor how many species are there, what species are there. We've also seen the, the uh, newsworthy camera trap snapshots um, done by National Geographic and and researchers out there where they've found rare species um, at particular sites where they were either not expecting them or they'd been searching for them for a very long time, sometimes even decades, and could not locate them except with the help of a camera trap. Yeah, and sometimes with those rare species, they'll even, in addition to getting data on occupancy, like, you know, this species is here, sometimes they'll even be a, a juvenile with an adult or something, so you know they're breeding. And so one example I can think of is um, there were camera trap photos of a Javan rhino, which is, like, one of the most endangered species on the planet. And there was a there was a baby with an adult and so you know that's extremely valuable data for a rare species like that that it's breeding um, and that was only possible because of the camera traps just because they're so difficult to detect 
And also, you know, talking about monitoring diversity, I, I read this really cool paper recently that I'd never heard of this, this method of using camera traps, but it was this really um, interesting design. So it was a, a drift fence set up for reptiles and amphibians, which is, if, in case you don't know, it, it's, it's like chicken wire or a net or something that's put in a straight line. So when a snake or lizard or other herp um, is walking and they encounter the fence, then they walk along the fence. And then, you know, a lot of times there'll be a bucket set in openings between the fence, so then they fall into the bucket. But this, instead of having a a bucket, was, it was like a, you know, like a white surface or piece of cardboard or something, I forget. And then there was a camera trap that was directly above the gap in the fence pointing down on that surface. So when a, a lizard or a snake would go through that gap in the fence, the camera would take a photo of it and then you could get an idea of the diversity of the herp species there without actually having to catch them or handle them, which was really unique. And the paper that I was reading was testing different techniques related to that that method for measuring herp diversity. So like, you know, how high does it have to be? Because you want it to be in focus enough to I- identify the species because some of them are not as unique. And I thought that was a really cool and creative way to to study herps that is sort of newer. So there are myriad examples um, that we could go on and on about, create a whole podcast about it, but we especially also wanted to highlight um, our current favorite technologies and some really innovative work that's being done, especially in the realm of uh, research that has been technically difficult or logistically difficult in the past. Um, so one of the projects that we wanted to highlight is the Carnegie Airborne Observatory. And we'll we'll have a link in the episode notes on an article from Manga Bay about this observatory. And the Carnegie Airborne Observatory, or CEO, provides airborne taxonomic mapping systems. So this is basically... A, a basically a plane outfit outfitted with incredible modern mapping technology um and there it enables them to fly over an area and to capture high definition 3d images using lidar technology which is light detection and ranging um and using those the remote sensing technology with lasers they are able to create these images that have never been be have never been captured before and from those images they can collect information about the habitat as well as the ecosystems and species that are that are living there and currently they are working on a project uh, in the caribbean um specifically in the dominican in the dominican republic off the coast of the dominican republic right now mapping corals um, with their reefscape project so the leader of this project is dr greg asner and he said that, um, you know, with this airborne observatory, you can fly over a reef in one day and get more data than you could in a lifetime of diving because that's historically how coral reefs have been studied and mapped is, you know, actually under the water. And this remote sensing technology allows them to just get unprecedented detail like Mariana was sort of talking about. And these details include you know, the depth of the corals, the species of the coral, and the health of the coral. And they use all this information in these maps to create, well, they're, they're currently using all this information in these maps to create a management plan for a new marine sanctuary um, off the coast of the Dominican Republic. And that's so they can, you know, determine, just so they can better manage reefs because reefs are so sensitive and and as we all know, very threatened. So they can determine, you know, where scuba diving tours should take place, where boats can go, where they're not going to be damaging coral, where fishing is allowed, you know, where it's going to be sustainable, or where they can establish new coral reefs with coral nurseries. And so it's, you know, this one extremely complex but um, quick use of technology is 
super efficient for developing this this management plan which this this level of management was never even possible before i love the ambition of this of this project because it's 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 certainly a a technologically intensive project and an expensive project as well the airborne observatory does not work alone it's a multifaceted approach they also have to groundproof the the results and the images they get so they they are still diving and they still have divers going down there um and doing their part of the surveys but there's just no way that these divers could collect the 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 amount of data and um the detail yeah, the detail, thank you. To collect the amount of data and detail that this LIDAR technology can collect from the air with this Carnegie Airborne Observatory. And this project with the Marine Sanctuary off the coast of the Dominican Republic is just a start of an entire p- plan for the Caribbean, um, for marine sanctuaries, and for collecting information like this. Uh, and part of the reason that I wanted to highlight this technology also is because marine ecology is one of the frontiers of science that it, in which we still have a, a dearth of knowledge. And um, there are a lot of technical, t- technical difficulties and logistic difficulties um, to collecting data in a, in a marine ecosystem and to be able to just put a plane in the air and collect data from beneath the surface of the water is, I think, pretty revolutionary. Yeah, this is just a, I'm just blown away by this, this piece of technology um, because it's so unique. And, and I really, if, if one of our listeners knows of technology that's being used in environmental sciences and conservation that outcompetes this, I, I would love to know because this is like, this is so futuristic. I mean, it's like, almost like like some spy technology <laughs> um, and the results of this research has has so much application so you know looking at this compared to other wildlife or environmental technologies like this has it all really when I discover technologies like this it, it really kind of blows my mind as as a field technician um, I don't have access to these kinds of revolutionary, almost science fiction. Oh, I do. I go in this stuff every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, it's it's really fascinating to see what you can do when you have the resources, um, which is a whole another pod, a whole another podcast episode in and of itself. Um, speaking of of resources for research, and I don't know if my microphone just caught that clap of thunder but um but yes it's it's always really fascinating for me to see these kind of technologies and it reminds me as a young researcher um not to try not to limit myself in terms of creativity in terms of ideas in terms of research um by being concerned about resources it is a big issue but um sometimes it can really hamper creativity um, when you don't have the resources. So it's nice to see that when the resources are available, they take full advantage of it and that they're, they're going, a, a they're taken to the air basically and um, offering these services for the, the greater good for, for conservation. And we've spoken before about the health of our oceans and how imperiled they are. And we don't mean to be gloom and doom because everything feels imperiled right now, but um, this is why it's important to take advantage of of the technologies of today to to really um, bring a multidisciplinary approach to conservation. Um, so let's continue talking about marine conservation technologies because I think that's where some of these these really crazy technologies in the environmental sciences, there's a lot of them in marine research. You know, we know, more about the surface of the moon than we do the deepest parts of our ocean. And so our knowledge of marine ecosystem is growing side by side as technology advances. So do you want to cover this pressure chamber that is amazing? 
Yes. And um, we'll also include this link in the episode notes as well. Um, uh, this coverage by National Geographic on the submersible pressure chamber, also called the subcast. But it's a um, it's a very simple yet effective piece of technology that marine ecologists are using to study marine life in the twilight zone. And the twilight zone is where um, it's at depths of about 180 feet, so about 54 meters. At those depths, uh, you begin to lose sunlight, and that's why it's called the twilight zone. And it's a difficult area of the ocean. It's difficult depth to study because it's too deep for divers, um, but not quite deep enough to justify the use of submersibles. And so you can't spend a lot of time at those depths, um, just logistically speaking. So this technology was created in order to facilitate the study of marine life at those depths. And it's, as I said, it's called the submersible pressure chamber. And it's basically, it's, it's quite simple. And I love how portable it is. It's, it's about two feet in length. And you can collect just a handful of specimens, um, whether they're fish species or invertebrate species down there. And it enables you to protect fish at, at those depths from dying of, of the pressure changes um, as they bring them up to the surface. Because these fish are currently, the best way to, to research them is in laboratories. So they collect the specimen, they bring it up to the surface, they take it to a laboratory and they study them there. Um, when you do that, most fish have a swim bladder that can rupture as a result of extreme pressure changes. So this pressure chamber compensates for those pressure changes and it prevents harm from coming to the animal um, as you bring them up to the surface. And it's, it's, it's really quite simple, but what amazes me is, um, and I'll, I'll quote Bart Shepard, the senior director of the Steinhardt Aquarium, and he says, before the subcast, before the pressure chamber, hand collecting and surfacing live fish involved the invasive process of needling a hole in their gas-filled swim bladders to prevent overexpansion which seems barbaric to me. And so even today, there there are a few remnants of um, almost barbaric methodologies that technology is helping us to do away with. Uh, this, this was a, a much-needed technology that's, that's now been invented to not only make the job easier for the researchers, but also to cause less harm to the specimens being studied. Um, so that, that I think is an incredible technology and it's not entirely cost prohibitive. Um, it's one of those technologies that is very advanced and yet affordable and easily applied in the field. Um, and it doesn't require a lot of training. Any marine ecologist can use it. Um, so that's, that's also especially important is, you know, while technologies like airborne LIDAR technology is, is amazing, um, it's it's also pretty niche. And so to create more technologies that even field technicians and field assistants can use, um, I think is really important to to conservation efforts. I think that this pressure chamber looks like an expensive piece of Tupperware. <laughs> it does. Like when you hold your, se- you put your cereal in. <laughs> <laughs> Just a plastic tube. Yeah. Um, Yes, but that's that's what's fascinating about it is uh, it's it's really quite simple. Um, it sounds complicated, and what it does is quite complicated is is um, adjusting adjusting pressure for live animals. Um, but it it is quite simple in in design and function. So I think the the more technologies like that, simple in design and function, usable, accessible, not too cost prohibitive. Um, the more technologies we have like that, the better it'll, the the easier it will be for um, conservation applications across the board, not just for specific niche disciplines or data, but really for, for anybody to use and um, to, to use creatively for conservation problems or for research problems. Yeah, so those are just a few examples of some of our favorite recent technologies that are um, emerging and and currently in the news. But, I mean, we could go on and on. We I mean, we could get into details of some of these other examples that we, we gave. 
But the point is, is that they're in the wildlife field. Technology is advancing rapidly. And that advance in technology is just opening up new doors for research and conservation. So as technology advances rapidly... Um, there comes the need to um, there comes a need for an organized effort to collate that technology to collate those ideas, and there are a lot of organizations and programs out there designed for for this purpose. Um, whether it's a consulting company like Technology for Wildlife, or programs from the World Wildlife Fund, the Zoological Society of London, which was one of the 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 forefathers of technological advancement in conservation. They have a very robust conservation technology program that does a, that does work across the globe. Um, also, universities with biology or ecology or wildlife programs, they're constantly testing and groundproofing technologies as they become available. Uh, the list goes on, and we'll provide some links in the episode notes. Uh, but my favorite quote on the subject comes from the tech for wildlife company that uh, a consulting company I mentioned earlier, it comes directly from their slogan, which is we amplify conservation impact. And I think amplify is the perfect word to describe what technology can do for conservation. It, it really does amplify our efforts. It amplifies our knowledge, the data we can collect, and also how we can disseminate uh, the information that, that we garner from technology. We forgot to mention podcasting. (laughs) Here we are. Oh, yes, we of are course. amplifying. So turn up your volume. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, this is another unique, really, piece of technology for sharing information. And one of the reasons we want to do this podcast is because there's not really a lot of podcasts about wildlife and and research. As we've been um, reiterating, reiterating ad nauseum. Technology can have many applications. It can come in many forms, um, and it really is a it really is our most useful tool currently for wildlife conservation. Um, our advances in technology, and it's important for us to to develop conservation plans that are adaptive and creative, and take technology and other disciplines in mind. I mean, this many of these technologies. Um, wouldn't have happened without engineers, physicists, you know, machinists. Uh, so it's important for us to be interdisciplinary and to be creative and to, to really not only create these technologies, but also to be creative in their application. Because um, as Jonah was saying, the many applications of camera traps, a technology we have had, probably one of our oldest wildlife technologies, comes with so many applications. And so... Um, yeah, so I, I think it's really important for us to, to keep thinking about technology um, when we create conservation plans and research projects as well. Um, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to revisit um, our plastics episode and just, you know, give a shout out um, because just in the news today, I saw that Starbucks is phasing out plastic straws from all their stores in the next year and a half, really, by 2020. Um, and they're doing this obviously for the environment, but they're also creating a new type of cup that's basically like an adult sippy cup. You can look look it up. Um, so it, it makes a straw unnecessary. Um, they will have straws for certain drinks that will be made out of paper or um, compostable material. Um, but it's really cool. And they, they also have this initiative going on that they've been working on for actually a long time to try to develop a more recyclable cup because the cups they have are like coated in plastic and they take like 20 years mm-hmm. for one cup to decompose, they said. Um, but this is an example of you know what we were talking about in the plastics episode. If you haven't heard it, um, go check it out. But this, you know, a company giving a projected timeline and, you know, when they're going to get rid of plastic products or whatever. And I think back in 2008 or 2010, Starbucks said that they were going to come up with a completely recyclable cup by 2015, and it didn't happen. However, you know, I was reading more about 
this initiative that they still have going on that they've been doing for like the past eight or ten years. And that's how long they've been trying to develop this recyclable cup because they need it to not leak and they need it to be insulating. And so they're they're actually offering um, they're putting I think they're putting in like ten million dollars into this initiative to try to develop a new recyclable cup so that they don't have cups that are coated in plastic and you know it's that's a long time to be working on that but like they i'm not a starbucks fan i don't drink coffee or whatever but i think it's really great that a company is trying so hard and they're doing like experiments using different material currently they're experimenting on these um cup linings that are made of like plant fibers and things like that so anyways i just wanted to give a a shout out to Starbucks um, because we didn't mention them in the last episode because this was just announced. Um, I just saw it today that they were planning to phase out plastic straws and use these new cups. So that's definitely a positive. That's definitely an uplifting story. Um, it really gives me hope for this this anti plastic initiative that's growing and growing and growing as we go along. If you have any stories any success stories or if you want to give a shout out to any companies you think are doing a really good job you can visit our facebook page and leave comments there or questions whether it's about plastics or about technologies if, you, if there's an awesome technology that you've heard of or that you use if um in any discipline it doesn't have to be wildlife but in any conservation discipline um if there's a if there's a technology also that you want to highlight, you can leave us a comment there as well. Or check out our, we- our website at conservationchronicles.podbean.com and you can listen to our previous episodes and you can also find our email address on there. And then subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs>